Hey, Jesus, hippie, look at my billboard, bro. Pretty nice. NoBullshitNewsHour.com. I made it. Available. The fucking YouTube? What the YouTube sticker up there? Facebook? Zuckerberg motherfucker. Shadow banning me. I'm gonna shadow ban him. Get up there, Jesus, and paint over that shit. Hey, man, you missed the spot. Little to the left. No, little to the right. Get it all done. Motherfuckers didn't pay a cent. Shadow ban me. No, 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 don't fuck with Reddit. I like Reddit. Live downtown Detroit, it's no BS news out with my main man, Tony. No bullshit! What's <laughs> just a breaking news? Double bullshit! Double bullshit! How do you like that, Karen? Nice. I like that, Charlie. Congratulations. I'm You've made it. I'm shadow banning Zuckerberg and Google. <laughs> Somebody put them up on my that. billboard, man. Oh, boy, you want to yeah, see nice. that? You want to see that billboard? It's uh, coming into the city of Detroit uh, via Corktown near the bridge. So you can go look at my billboard. Okay. And by the way, Reddit forever. Do you know? When we painted over Google that day, that very day, the stock took a shit. Down 5%. Shadow ban me, man. Now, Hopefully they get the message. That's right. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Karen, today, yes. as you know, let me just let everybody know, uh, I'm really excited about our guest, yeah. Sam Quinones. I've been mm -hmm. wanting to get him on for... Geez, a couple hundred shows now. The, my estimation, the best nonfiction author, one of the best in the history of the United States. Now I'm talking Mark Twain, I'm talking Joan Didion, I'm talking Truman Capote. I mean, the guy spectacularly wrote two books. One's called Dreamland. It's like, how did Oxycontin and heroin swamp the United States? This thing is it's not only just so brilliantly researched it's just so beautifully written i mean i'm, je I'm jealous of you it. you have been telling me about sam and dreamland in particular for a long long time so that is no bullshit. and you are reading the book mm -hmm. yeah and i recommend i, I swear I, to you i i went to reread it again this weekend and the last person i gave it to hasn't given it back it's, it's one of those huh slow reader and well i ordered no. both of his books so i'm gonna you check there them you out. go see sam look there you go man i told you there's some sales and last year he came uh well i guess 2021 the least of us which is the follow-up now watch this everybody oxycontin opioids start killing us then black tar heroin from mexico shows up from there sam picks up with fentanyl and super meth and if you want to know where all the homeless came from it's not like we went broke or they came out of the woods this super pharma this synthetic drugs that this country's hooked on that's the consequence so if you think it's darwinism let them die 
that's on you, man. I don't care if you're listening or not. This is probably the biggest public health issue today, yesterday, and way on into the future. Now, before we bring Sam on, I just want to let you know a little word from our underwriters, XG Service Group, specializing in uh, voiceover internet uh, phone service, security cameras, hidden cameras, access control, Wi-Fi design and installation, uh, drive-through camera systems and ordering boards, construction cameras, railroad cameras. They do it all. They do it for everybody. The government, fast food. I was talking to Bernie the other day, security too. They'll do security cameras, and he's he got really excited about all the different kinds of security cameras they have. So and you want to spy on people. Did he talk to you to your eyes glazed over? <laughs> maybe I was, I was interested because he's all into this he's, right yeah he's a good dude too you know he wired this up he wired he drew's up like uh so call his son matt yaskovitz at 734-245-4100 oh they do racetracks too they do everything yeah give right? him a shot yeah and uh of course adr experienced overseeing more than a quarter billion dollars in private and public construction projects since 2001 as you all know, ADR is competent. Uh, reduce your costs, increase your bottom line. ADR saved clients millions. That's true. And some news will be forthcoming about ADR and what they mean to this community. I will leave it at that. Just know that ADR consultants are experts in procurement and government compliance and information technology. ADR, honest, ethical, smart. Call Barry Ellen Tuck at 248-318-9424 for a consultation and get your shit fixed. ADR, 248-318-9424. And of course, it is Super Bowl season. And you know if you want a piece of Detroit, because Detroit ain't in the playoffs again. Nope. But if you want a piece of Detroit, world-famous Detroit, go to AmericanConeIsland.com for your Super Bowl party. Two with everything. Aside to change tries to go. Ready, set. Go Red, go! Detroit might not make it to the championships, but you can have a little bit of Detroit at your next championship party. American Coney Island, 12 dogs with all the fixing. Air mail special, right to your door. That includes Alaska and Hawaii. AmericanConeyIsland.com. The first, the best, and better than all the rest. And they can't fly either! Vegas, they got a Cody store there too. Yeah. That never gets old, Red. You did a good job there, bro. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Sam, Sam Quinones with us, author of Dreamland and uh The Least Among Us. Great to have you on, brother. Wonderful to be here. Thank you so much, Charlie. Really appreciate it. Uh, you're laughing because you've never been on a podcast like this. It's a good podcast. No, it? I, you are. You are 100 correct on that one. I would say, yeah. <laughs> Man, you're gonna you're gonna knock him, bro. Thank you. It's an honor to have you here. I don't say that often. Oh, honor's mine, my friend. Honor's mine. Really. Thank you very, very much. Man, look. Okay, I, I've been thinking a lot about this. Everybody, please, when you're driving in your car, whatever you're doing. This is the explanation about what's happened to us and why. Sam, I've been thinking about it. Um, 
I guess I want to do it this way. I want to do it in a personal way. The scope of the drug scourge. And I want to make it personal. My sister, Nicole, God rest her soul. Her baby daddy, I guess, you know, basically my brother-in-law, Mark Yates. He, he's gone. He got caught up in, in the oxy, late 90s. Really took over his life. He ends up moving in his parents' basement in Livonia, Michigan. Retired auto workers. Uh, you know, a dark room. And he, he starts to lose the lightning, fall apart, trying to get off it, hitting the methadone clinics. And my dear sweet niece, his daughter, Ashley Yates, dies in that room with him with a needle in her arm. The black tar Mexican heroin in 2008. Later, Mark ends up succumbing to the abuse of, of the opioids. Raved about him. You know, great shit till they weren't. And then you fast forward. And that's not fast forward. That was a lot of pain that went in there. People meaningful to me. Then my dear brother, he's my brother-in-law, but he's my brother, and I love him very much. His name's Pete Kuzniar. And he liked to do cocaine. He didn't smoke cocaine. He didn't shoot cocaine. Like a lot of us, so many of us, he snorts some cocaine once in a while. And he had fentanyl in it. And he died in a house in Detroit. And they took him to the morgue where he sat for a week because nobody called us. We went looking for him. His wallet was in his pocket. Nobody gave a fuck. That's a murder, Sam. Fentanyl, somebody sold you something laced with fentanyl. That's the way it is now. His case molders. I told my wife I was going to speak of him tonight. And she became enraged. She's so sad. Like the least of us, you understand? And they still have his phone. They still have his clothes. I know the commander of that unit and nothing. And so, brother, through that prism, I would like to begin how all this happens to us. And I want to start in 1980. And there is a letter to the editor in the New England Journal of Medicine. I dug it up. Can you... From there, Sam, in this next hour, bring us to where we are today and what we're going to do. What does this four-sentence letter to the editor mean? Well, that letter was written, it's known as famously now, or uh, as the Porter Jick letter. The letter was really written by Herschel Jick, the doctor, who, who at the time, 1979, this came out in January of 1980. So 1979, he is running a big database of hospital records. And in that, he's got a computer guy. And through the computer guy, he asks these questions of these hospital records, normally about drugs used in hospital. He told me one day it occurred to him, I think he was reading a newspaper article. He thought, him, how many people in these hospital records were provided with opioids, with opiates of some kind, narcotics? Um, and how many of those people were then addicted to, became addicted to those things. And it turns out that the first number was of 300,000 records, something like 12,000 were given opiates while in hospital for their treatment, pain treatment, and four of them got addicted. So he thought this was interesting. And he writes a letter 
to the editor. And that was all he said he ever intended from this letter, which is to say, FYI, it was published in, in a version, in an edition of the of New England Journal of Medicine, way at the back of the book with all the letters to the editor. And, and on that, it said, um, we saw this. We saw this number, 300,000 records. We saw almost 12,000 people were given these drugs and only four got addicted. Now, there's some caveats to that because what he was seeing was an entirely different situation from what would later transpire 30 years uh, into the future. And that is that in hospitals, there was not a very, very uh, aggressive use of opioids. That You were never allowed to take them home with you. If you were going to be given them in a hospital, you had to have doctors sign for them. It was a much more rigid supervision of how they were used. And of course, he was right. When you supervise supply and reduce supply, which is what, essentially what was the case in, in these hospitals at the time, the number of people who are going to get addicted are very, very small. He writes this up and he, and he uh, sends it to the New England Journal of Medicine. And in due course, they publish it in, in January of 1980, way at the back of the book. But they leave out a crucial piece of information in that headline you just showed, uh, addiction rare in patients treated with narcotics. They leave out while in hospital. <laughs> Right. That's what it should have said. But anyway, so this would seem like a, a, a nothing kind of publication, a, a letter to the editor, which has how he took it. He forgot all about it. Years later, though, pain specialists now looking for new ways of treating pain and believing that narcotic painkillers provided the, the pathway forward, the solution, the solution really, for pain patients, a better way of treating pain, because the truth was we didn't do a very good job of treating pain. So they were right to look for new ways of treating it, but they were kind of on a messianic, a kind of a mission to, to eradicate pain. And they thought that opioids were, were the answer, except for the doctors. Their theory was that doctors just were too afraid to use them. So they were looking for data or, or proof that, that these pills were now wouldn't would not be addictive to people uh, who were in pain, patients who were in pain. And they come upon this letter, don't really know how, but they began to quote this letter <laughs> as if it were gospel, as if it were a study, as if it were a, and, and, and in time, as the kind of a game of telephone ensues over the next 10 years in which people begin to mention it. And then, and, and virtually nobody gets addicted because, of course, if there's only four people getting addicted to out of 11,000, then nobody's really caring, you know. And so this becomes kind of like the scientific proof for what becomes a massive push, first on the part of pain specialists, but then they were very quickly joined by pharmaceutical companies uh, who make those very same pain medicines, Vicodin, Percocet, et cetera, et cetera, many others and later OxyContin uh, put out by, by Purdue. Their, their companies begin to use that letter as scientific proof. And it goes from being quoted as a study, which it never was, to, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, a report, which it never was, then a landmark report, then a study. Then finally in 2001, Time Magazine called it a landmark study that does much to change what we know about pain, blah, blah, blah. It was just this transformation of this really nothing letter, the author who, uh, of which had forgotten all about it and meant it really meant nothing, although he was correct in what he was saying. 
that if you really, really control supply, the number of people who are going to get addicted is very, very low. That's what he was saying. It got extrapolated and taken out of context and provided the major, a major source of quote unquote scientific data or scientific substantiation for the idea that we knew, science now knew that pain medicines, narcotic painkillers were virtually non-addictive when used to treat pain. And that is really, it's a bizarre episode in American science, but that is really kind of what helped pave the way for this revolution in pain, uh, opioid revolution in pain management that began to take hold in the mid nineties and then really stretched into the next 15, 20 years. And really the truth is we're kind of still in the middle of it. And how do we, how, how does it become ubiquitous? Where does it become ubiquitous? And who's the one well, that I made think, it ubiquitous? Well, I think doctors, first of all, are looking for, for, for some way of treating pain because it's very difficult to treat. It takes a lot of time. You're getting managed care now, which reduces the amount of time many doctors now have with their patients. They don't have time. They have 15 minutes per patient or something like that. They don't have time to, and pain patients take up a lot of time. And so they're looking for pain management. Meanwhile, Am Americans are like looking to doctors to, you know, cure me, doc, save me, doctor, give me the miracle cure. At the same time, pharmaceutical companies are seeing, well, hell, we make these pills. We're going to market these to not just normally in the, in the past, these, this, these drugs were used right after surgery, right after you've just been cut open, which is exactly where it should be, or at end of life terminal cancer care. Now they're seeing, wow, those are minor markets. We're now looking for general, generalized pain, chronic pain. And all of a sudden they see this enormous market moving, uh, you know, opening up to them like the Shangri-La almost. And so you get all of these forces, pressures on doctors to begin to prescribe these pills aggressively and for things that they never would have prescribed them for before and for to allow people to take them home in, in enormous numbers. And crucially, too, in all this, you begin to see um, uh, refills. Refills are a huge part of this. People get one bottle, but then they get three or four or four or five, six more over the next several months. All they got to do is go into the dog and say, you know, dog, I still got the pain and all. And the doctors very often would just kind of like, Give them more refills. So you begin to see in 1996 prescribing take off like taking off like a like a like a an airplane leaving the tarmac. You know, just like that. It just goes up and up and up and up, and it really covers the country. This is a crucial thing. It's not geographically isolated to eventually to just economically devastated areas. It's also well-off suburbs. It's in Orange County, California. It's in Rust Belt and Appalachia. It's all over the country because the doctors who are pressured or eagerly embrace or for whatever reason begin to prescribe this way, they're all across the country as well. So you see an enormous supply. And of course, then the science proves, the science, quote unquote, that they're quoting, proves to be incorrect. And, and many, many people do get addicted because it doesn't take into account people's backgrounds. Some people can be given these pills with no problem. Other people, not so, but you really have to examine the background of people. And instead, it's just like one pill for every single human being, no matter the background, no matter the, the situation, no matter the pain or no matter the, uh, the, 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 the medical history. So Purdue Pharma, the Sackler family, 
they get yeah they get um, their patent in 1996. Is that for OxyContin itself, or is it for the coating on the pill? That it was- it's really for the the OxyContin is really just a pill containing an older uh, 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 opioid narcotic painkiller called oxycodone. Their their new innovation is to, as you say, is to coat it with a time release formula. They'd already put out a pill like this. In fact, it had been very helpful to medicine. It was it was for, it was um, um, morphine sulfate coated in this time release formula that Purdue had invented, and it was marketed only to terminal cancer patients. And it was a wonderful wonderful drug. And in fact, had they done that with oxycontin, we'd be erecting statues to these guys. But instead, what they saw was forget the terminal cancer patients. Well, we want them, but we can see now that there's this enormous new market of just generalized pain patients all across the country. And we, we know that we, we can see, we can start with certain doctors who are already prescribing a lot and they had data about this. And a lot of those doctors happen to be in Appalachia or in Rust Belt areas, uh, impoverished areas. And they began to really first begin all kinds of very aggressive marketing. And this is, this is also crucial to this story. They're hiring huge numbers of pharmaceutical salespeople. Now, before the, the salesmen, they're almost all men, were former doctors or, or pharmacists. And they knew what they were talking about. They were great sources of information for doctors. And doctors prized them as such. And the salesmen prized that relationship because they lived in the area where they sold. They, they had been there for years and years and years. They weren't going anywhere. But beginning in the mid-1990s, at the same time, you begin to see this tr- revolution in sale and in, in drug force and drug company sales uh, force. And pretty soon, all those old guys are kind of shown the door. All these new people are brought in. A lot of them are women. All of them are handsome, or most of them are handsome. And they're right out of college. They don't know anything about drugs. They don't know anything about medicine. They don't know what they're selling, but they do know how to sell it. They're salespeople. And they begin a brand new day in pharmaceutical sales in America with aggressive marketing gifts constantly, relentless visits to doctors. And the one thing that they knew how to do more than anything, and that was they understood the importance of food, eating together, that we have, you know, human beings, we have always known that the way to kind of bring ourselves together is to eat together. Well, they figured that out and they begin to bring food to the doctor's office, enough food for for the staff, even more than the staff can eat because they know the staff isn't paid that well. And so they can take that food home to their their family. And once you have the staff in your hand, a doctor is putty in, in your hand. It's easy manipulation. And you begin to see this beginning in the mid-1990s. We go from 38,000 drug sales, drug company sales reps in 95 to, I think it's 102,000 in 2002 or three, right in those years. I mean, just an explosion of these guys. And they're like locusts. They won't stop coming. And they don't live in the neighborhood, in the area, or they're not going to stay long in the area. And so they don't really have that deep need for roots and credibility that the former sales reps did. But this was also part of it. The key, the key people in inventing and, and rethinking pharmaceutical sales were the people at Purdue Pharma. That's, that's their great innovation, really, was to say, we are going to market it a narcotic as if it was over-the-counter medicine. And then other companies watch this and said, okay, we're going to do that. Yeah, we're and, going to follow and they, us. And they knew it was addictive. 
Of course, it's an opioid. Yes, everybody know, knows it's addictive, but you're, but the, the sales brochures would always say virtually non-addictive because that's they were using at the footnote. You would say you would see uh, the Herschel and Porter and Jick is one that was officially called Porter and Jick. It's really just called the, the, the it's really just the Herschel Jick letter. But Porter and Jick, you know, and they quote in New England Journal of Medicine. Oh my God! Well, everybody knows that's kind of the Bible of medical research, right? And so everybody kind of goes, yeah, oh, well, if it, you know, must be, no one, this is pre-internet, no one has the time to dig through to find a, a, an old version of the 19, uh, you know, 1980 edition of the New England Journal of Medicine. Everyone's just believing the pain specialists who are now being funded by, by pharmaceutical companies that everybody's just kind of in this little bubble saying, yeah, what we're doing is right. It'll help millions of people. We'll eradicate pain and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's an amazing a, a, a parable or fa I mean, it's just an amazing story to me about how you manipulate science, quote, um, quote, unquote, and, and, and come to kind of what is a, an enormous financial benefit to the companies uh, of which are there not very many that were making these, these, these medicines principally, of course, uh, uh, Purdue Pharma, because Purdue Pharma also, was not a diversified drug company. It had only one, really it had only one drug. 90% for the rest of its effective life until recently, um, that company made 90% of its profits from selling OxyContin. It did not sell a lot of other drugs. And in fact, later on, there were lots of lots of data showing that they, they were thinking of diversifying into very different areas of medical, of drugs and so on. And they never did because they were as strung out on on the money on the yep. dope money mm -hmm. and on the dope and they're allowed to get they're a cartel they are a cartel a legal cartel they were they were a remarkable story of a of a company that nobody knew i mean this is not a big company well let me we we know so their sins let me the strength and the beauty of your writing is the scenery and the places you go so pill mills show up. It's not just everybody wanting to get rich on this. So you come to yep. the ground zero, Portsmouth, Ohio, which I might add right. is the original home of the Detroit Lions. Portsmouth was rocking right. in the 20s. I mean, a big industrial right. town. It empties out. There's nothing there. I'm in Detroit, big industrial town. It empties out. There's not much here. What did you see in Portsmouth, which basically is writ large what you see in America? Right. Portsmouth, Portsmouth is a beautiful town. It's a wonderful town. I've been there many times and I love the people there. It went through hell, though. Um, and and uh, Portsmouth was a big time industrial town. It had steel mills. It had a number of shoe factories. It had a variety of other factories. It had a, a, a large, I don't want to call it middle class because it was more working class, but everybody was employed. It had a large population, 50,000 people, and it had a, um, a very vibrant downtown business sector, Main Street and, and all that. And it was it was it was a really a town where everybody kind of hung together. Everybody was working and that kind of thing. And then Rust Belt phenomenon sets in. Detroit sees, sees that, of course, but certainly it happens elsewhere in Portsmouth is one place. Steel factory closes, fact the shoe factories close the downtown. Uh, the people begin to leave. Half the population leaves and my Main Street em empties out. And and they really lose that essential 
element of community that is the major bulwark against drug abuse and drug problems. And they become very vulnerable. They're stripped of all that community feel. Everybody kind of goes indoors. The only, the, 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 the name of my book, Dreamland, is taken from a swimming pool that was the town center for decades in that town where everybody grew up in Dreamland. That's the name of the pool, Dreamland. The gorgeous thing about the, the grounds are about the size of a football field. And everybody went, that's where you grew up. That's where parents watched you, even if you weren't their kid. Um, and everybody kind of grew up in that. And, and then along with the Rust Belt phenomenon, the pool closed too and was transformed into a, a, a de very depressing uh, strip mall. Um, that's in Portsmouth. Now, what they lost was that essential element keeping them together. And so isolation creeps in. There's no place to see other people like had been the case with Dreamland. Everybody's, the only place you see everybody now is at Walmart, where, where all the downtown stores have been sucked up and regurgitated. All that they sold, sold was regurgitated onto the floor of Walmart. Portsmouth becomes, I went to Portsmouth thinking I'd spend a couple of days there. Um, and a couple, maybe five or six days. And then it ended up being six visits each for about a week or so, something like that. And I um, went there because Portsmouth is where effectively the pill mill business model is invented. That then with the prescribing of these pain pills becomes a business model that people uh, replicate in many other parts of the country, Florida, all over the Midwest, et cetera. A pill mill is essentially a pain clinic. Now, pain clinics are not pill mills by definition. A pill mill is a pain clinic where no pain is really diagnosed and no pain is ever attempted to be treated. A simply factory. It's exactly where you're going, you're standing in line sometimes for hours um, to get your prescription from a legitimate quote unquote doc who gives you then a prescription for pills that could be many, you know, long. And then you go to and find it's up to you to find a pharmacy that'll fill that 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 prescription. Hours. But you said really hours. So the hours there were like hundreds of people lining the yeah. sidewalk waiting for this different crackpot right. that coming from all over the country to get a script that would be refilled and, and refilled and refilled. There was a guy in Portsmouth who invented that business model, essentially, David Proctor. Um, I call him Liberace in the book kind of because he's a very flamboyant guy, drove a Porsche, fur jackets and all that in Portsmouth, Ohio, you know, wild guy. <laughs> um, he was, he was a, uh, he started, Kind of stumbled into this idea that I could just simply sell. His corruption was like gradual over years. It wasn't. He wasn't corrupt initially. He just kind of gradually coasted into corruption and began to sell, essentially sell prescriptions to people, many of whom he had known for, as, from from childhood. They were kids he treated when he was, you know, or maybe sometimes even give, helped given birth to. And, and um, he becomes this center, this uh, vector of prescriptions for the area. But uh, what he also does, he's known as the Roy Kroc, or uh, was it the Ray Kroc, right. one of the, the guy, the McDonald's guy right. of, of right. pill mills, because he begins, he has an accident in 98 after his business model is already established because OxyContin is out there. When OxyContin comes in, that becomes the big motivator for this thing. And he becomes uh, this employer 
of quack doctors to take his place after his auto accident. He can't exactly run the clinic himself, but he can hire doctors. He begins to hire these quack doctors who come from all over with substance abuse problems themselves. A lot of them, some of them, to their credit, said, I'm not one any part of this, I'm leaving. But a good number of them stayed. And some of them went out on their own to form their own pill clinic, pill mills. And this is when 98, 99, 2000, then the pill mill idea then spreads down to Florida, Fort Lauderdale, Orlando, places like that. And by then, in the mid-2000s, and by then, the, the idea is common, almost common knowledge. But I went to Portsmouth because I wanted to see the place where the pill mill was invented. In the end, I began to find, I saw as Portsmouth as a place where recovery was possible. Well, maybe we could talk about that uh, uh, later. But that's why I went there in the first place, was to see uh, the place where the pill mill had been effectively invented by this one guy who I tried to interview. He did not. He he was in prison. He did a number of years in prison. He said no while he was in prison. And then when he gets out, he's Canadian. They deported him to Toronto. And he wrote to me. And I said, well, of course, I'd like to talk to you. And he says, well, I, uh, you know, of course, I would like money for this. And I said, well, yeah, I don't I don't pay for I don't pay for interviews. And that was the last I heard from him. He died a year later. Mm. So. I know my my friends want to get something in, but I want I, I want to get to the next step. We could go on for hours, sure. man. This is Sam Kenyon as the author of Dreamland and uh, uh, The Least of Us talking about how synthetics are the drug now. It ain't, it ain't plants. It ain't coca leaves. It ain't marijuana. It ain't opium. It's synthetic chemicals. But everybody found out that that coating didn't work. The Sackler's coating. You just ground the shit up. You snorted it. You got high. You got addicted. People right. started going to methadone clinics like my brother-in-law, Mark. Right. And something new pops up another business model shows up which is right. the mexicans with their black tar heroin starting to pass yeah. that out at the methadone clinic if you could go into the next one the drug sure. that, that, that claimed that my from, my niece's life exactly that that story grew from my years in mexico i lived i lived 10 years in mexico my first two books were about mexico and that really was how i got into this story because I didn't know anything about this stuff, oxycontin ports and thing. I wanted to write about heroin traffickers. That's what I want. And I was at the LA Times, and I spoke with the DEA supervisor who told me, you know, we are seeing staggering quantity seizures of, of heroin all of a sudden. I'm like, well, why would that be? And I began to investigate why that was, and I came upon this village in Mexico that was a stand-in. They were not the only traffickers of black tar heroin, but they were very important in a way I'll explain. And this one village in Mexico, all these guys had migrated to the United States, mostly first to San Fernando Valley in, California, in LA, where they developed a business model for selling retail, heroin retail. Now, most Mexican traffickers do not want to sell retail. They want to sell wholesale. It's less risk. But these guys were all about retail and the profit that retail could generate. And they developed a system like pizza delivery. So you would call a number you're an addict you call a number that circulates around everyone's got the number and you make your order and they say okay burger king at this address in 20 minutes and you go and you wait for the driver they have a whole bunch of drivers driving around their mouth their mouths filled with like little tenth of a gram doses of, of black tar heroin wrapped in little balloons the big bottle of water right next to the cops stops them they swig it all down 
right? And no guns. They do not play with guns. They know they're only going to be deported if they get caught. With a gun, they're going to be doing 10 years in prison. So no guns. And, and this is the business model. And it becomes extraordinarily effective. And it becomes very expansionary because these guys are all from the same village or nearby villages. Everybody knows, even competitors, everybody knows where their each mother's mother, each other's mom lives or dad lives. So you are not going to be shooting it out for territory among these guys. They are not going to be killing each other because it'll have repercussions back home very, very quickly. A lot of times they're related. They're cousins or brothers-in-law, whatever. This system, because they can't kill each other, this system expands because they're looking for new territory to, uh, to avoid competition. So they expand. First, it's in the West, Salt Lake. Denver, Reno, Portland, Albuquerque, Phoenix, et cetera, et cetera a bunch of other towns. Um, and then in 1998, one guy, a particular guy I interviewed at great length, who was actually a Mexican-American guy, but who had hooked up with these guys in prison and now was almost like an adopted son of the village back home. He takes his heroin based on a tip. He takes his black tar heroin, which he knows is very good because he's a longtime um, a user himself. And he goes east of the Mississippi River to Columbus, Ohio, where a guy has told him, man, there's no dope like this at all in Columbus. You will make a killing. And sure enough, he shows up and very quickly he's like selling more than he can possibly. And he's got a couple of drivers from the village and they're all they spend the first year, he told me, just selling gangbusters. Just incredible. And and uh, yeah, there you go. The map right there. Um, and so in that happens, though, just as OxyContin and this opioid revolution in pain management is taking hold in American medicine. He figures this out. He doesn't have a clue what OxyContin is, right? He's from California. There's no OxyContin out there yet. He go, he's selling heroin to, a, to an addict in, um, in Wheeling, West Virginia, who is a woman who is a longtime heroin addict, yet she has a house and a new car. And he's never known a heroin addict have a house or a new car. So he sits her and I go, what, what? And she wants to trade him for his heroin. She gives him a bottle of Oxycontin. He looks at this. He tells me, yeah, look, I looked at this bottle. I said, Oxycontin, what the hell? Is I'm not trading my good dope for this bottle of pills. And she sits him down and tells him what's what. She said, no, this is a new thing. I'm making triple. I'm taking, I'm collecting all the Oxycontin from seniors here in Wheeling. I'm going up to the hollers in the mountains and selling to all the hillbillies up there. And man, I'm making triple. And that's how I afford my car and my house and my habit at the same. And, and the light goes on and he goes, bing. And he begins to realize that there is this new marketing of these pills. And, and that he, if he just follows the pills, he will have a bigger market for his black tar than anybody ever imagined. Because these now, are all, these are, these are all basically morphine based. You know, what, what is, Oxycontin, what is heroin, what is Percocet? They're all derived eventually up the chain from the opium poppy. Yes, right. And then, of course, they're changed uh, molecularly sometimes or combined with other things. But basically, they, they're all, yeah, they're all opiates. They're all opiates, and they have the same effect on the brain as heroin does. Um, and that's what we're finding out by 1998, that people get really strung out on this stuff. And all of a sudden, he brings his black tar heroin, which is more potent and cheaper. Now, in the right. addict world, that means better, right? <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Let me get more of that. 
I want to make something clear, though, that sometimes is misunderstood. These guys are not the only dealers of black tar heroin. In fact, later on, other people get involved that are much bigger producers of this stuff. What is important about these guys from this little town, Jalisco, in the state of Nayarit, it's a small state in Mexico, so small that 10 years in Mexico, I lived in Mexico, I never went to Nayarit. I only went there to, when I got involved in this in this story. They, they are important to this story, not because they're the only ones. It's because they are the first ones to, with a system in place to both recognize and then systematically exploit the coming market for heroin that widespread prescribing of opioid painkillers, wanton, un, unregulated, unbridled prescribing of opioid painkillers represents. that They see what's coming. And mainly it's just one guy first sees it's coming and then everybody else is like, damn. And from there, they begin to branch out. For Columbus, pretty soon all these guys, his two drivers go home for the fiesta in August, which is when they have their annual fiesta in this town. And they're talking, everybody learns about Columbus. And pretty soon, all these crews are piling into Columbus. Well, from there, they begin to look for new towns. Because, again, this, they can't kill each other. They're competing. They can't kill each other. So Nashville, Lexington, Colum uh, uh, Cincinnati, um, uh, Indianapolis, Charlotte, and several towns in South Carolina, on and on like that. You see this wild expansion as, and this is at a time, this, these areas where are where people are really, the, the pain pills are really hitting hard. And so they see this like amazing market that nothing on the West Coast could match until later. And so that is, that's kind of the, the Jalisco story is of this small town, very, almost the size of Portsmouth that has this outsized uh, role in this whole problem that we, we are now facing. I want to say, again, though, that there are many other people who got involved in, 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 in smuggling black tar heroin after a while. And it wasn't just them, but they were the first. How many people, and I'm going to make room for my friends, colleagues, before we get to the, the next wave of synthetic death. How many people from Oxycontin and black tar heroin lost their lives? Let's say up to 2006. That's why I want to make a break here. Uh, 2006. It's hard. I, I don't have the figures in front of me. You're talking about a, a, a steady, steady increases every year. Hundreds of thousands. Um, and, and you're talking about early on, though, it's not it's not what it would later become. It's 20, 30,000, I think, something like that. Then it gets up to 40, then to 50. And by the mid 2000s, I think it's up to about 50 or 60. I mean, I'm 2000 like 15, right in there, you're talking 50,000, 70,000 eventually. Um, uh, it was always, but here's the other problem that I found as a reporter. That's the number that was reported. The problem is that the, what this problem un, unveiled was that we had a real serious problem with our medical examiner system. So many of these deaths were happening in small counties and so many of these counties didn't have medical examiners that really had the budget or the wherewithal or the knowledge of how to deal with um, heroin or opium overdose deaths and that kind of thing. They didn't have the money frequently to do toxicology reports. And often, and I don't say often, but there were cases certainly in these small towns where the cause of death, if you put uh, a heroin overdose or something like that, you could get visited by that family because everybody knew each other, this small town America, right? And so the numbers 
I found were dramatically underreported, maybe 30% lower than what they actually were. I, I think they're closer to, to what they should be now, but for a lot of years, this was a real, a, a real problem. I almost got my first story for the LA Times shot down because I couldn't really show that the numbers were as bad as people were saying because because so many counties that just didn't know how to count this stuff because they never dealt with it before. Uh, yeah, Sam, I, I wanted to ask you, go back to something earlier. You were speaking on um, the Sacra family and the pharmaceutical. Just to give a people an idea of how much money was made during this period, this opioid explosion, okay. what is the Sacra family, what was they worth valued at after this explosion and the profits came back from this? I believe that, that you know, what, what happened was uh, uh, um, Forbes, which does these kind of lists of wealthy people and wealthy families, listed them as, I believe, oh, Lord, I'm going to mess this up, but definitely one of the wealthiest, suddenly one of the wealthiest families in, in America. Um, they were always wealthy, but this was a whole other level of wealth. I believe it was 14, their, their net worth was $14 billion dollars. But the, the interesting thing is that, that I think began to happen is that as the years passed, as I said earlier, you can see this if you read reports uh, using internal, uh, based on internal uh, emails and, and, and communications within the, within the Purdue company and the Sackler family, you could see that, that, that they were, no amount of money was enough. Mm. You know, they would get from Purdue Pharma. They were the owners of Purdue Pharma. Eight Sackler members sat on the board of Purdue Pharma. They effectively ran that company, even though they're boards of directors. They effectively were the CEOs. And they kept demanding more and more and more. And so I remember reading in 2010, this Purdue Pharma kicked, put, you know, gave, I mean, sent the Sackler families. 800, this was a pinnacle, $889 million in one year. That's how much money, and all of this, virtually all of this is from Oxycontin, okay? Very little is from anything else. And, and, and still, there's these emails that are just incredible about the members of the Sackler family upset, upset because they didn't make certain sales goals, or maybe we should try something new because we're just not hitting the goal. And I'm like, you just made 800, almost a billion dollars from the Purdue Pharma. And what, what ends up happening too is Purdue has to put up so much money to the Sacklers that normally that they don't invest in research and development. Most drug companies put aside a significant amount, 25%, maybe 15, 25% of their income, of their revenue towards research and development to find other pills, other products, whatever it happens to be. It's a common thing in the in the uh, pharmaceutical industry these guys do not all that money goes to the sacklers and and yet they're still you know upset there's some dramatic stuff if i if i would i'd read the uh the criminal complaint brought by the massachusetts massachusetts attorney general's office 277 pages of internal based entirely on internal communications that they subpoenaed it is an amazing thing to read and to feel how upset these guys were that they simply, you know, $889 million was somehow not enough. But again, feel felt very much to me like the way an addict feels about his dope. You know, it, nothing is ever enough. No, no quantity is ever enough. Okay, guess what, Sam? Here's what I'm going to – I'm just going to 
this is so deep. I, I could go all night. Here's what I'm going to do. It's it's an hour yeah. program. I'm now making an executive decision. You're now teaching me how to do the new TV. What okay, I'm going to do, that now, we're at about 2006. You know what happened. People are dying. This is a legal mob. They've got friends in Washington. This is at a time when NAFTA is happening and globalization, when the roundabout Washington's for sale, that's the 90s, and you see what Big Pharma's doing. So I want to thank everybody for listening. We're going to pause, end the program. I'm going to freshen my beer. We're going to come back, and we're going to pre-tape part two would you mind staying with us for another hour to talk fentanyl and super meth happy to do it thank you yes this no is, problem at all get dude. your get your beer i'm gonna go change shirts as if there's an entirely <laughs> different program nice and, uh, and uh, maybe uh maybe put some moose in my hair he's a pro and uh and we'll come back and do the whole thing okay great let's uh, see you in 10 thank you everybody that's sam quinones that part was the book Dreamland, and I'm telling you, that was the scientific professorial explanation of what happened to us. But that book is dynamite. I mean, it's 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 like a detective novel. It's so good. All right, Sam Quinones, we'll be back. Thanks, everybody.